news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. We are so excited for our upcoming virtual retreat on the 24th and 25th of September, in which we'll have more than 20 hours of phenomenal jam-packed content, which is the equivalent of doing a 10-week creative writing course, except with the kind of guest speakers you'd never have access to otherwise. We have such an amazing lineup for you, including New York Times bestselling authors, three of Reese's book club pick authors, award-winning editors, and writing coaches. You'll learn about point of view, structure, plotting, writing a proposal, outlining your novel, and much, much more. You'll also learn about current market trends and how they shape what agents and editors are actively looking for, as well as how to attract an agent's attention. You'll be taught how to craft page-turning bestsellers, how to overcome rejection, and what to expect from the writing life. Besides all of this, we're helping you discover a community on our Retreats Facebook page, in the breakaway sessions with Carly, Cece, and myself, and in the various social activities we have planned from the Friday night onwards. All the sessions will have Q&As so that you can speak directly with authors and editors at the top of their game. 
The retreat will be recorded so that if there's a day you can't attend, you'll still be able to catch up immediately afterwards. And then you'll get to ask us your burning questions in the post-retreat Q&A Zoom on the 3rd of October. Come and engage, interact, learn and grow. We can't wait to see you there. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks. As is our want on the show, we are going to dive right in. Carly, why don't you kick us off with the first query letter? Dear Cece, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing is my favorite podcast, and I get ecstatic whenever you guys drop a new episode. Thank you very much for all the time and effort you put in. I have submitted quite a different version before, sadly not chosen, but Bianca said to resubmit if we haven't heard, so here go. Do No Harm, 82,000 Words, is a psychological suspense novel that is Dennis Lehane meets Philip K. Dick. It will appeal to fans of The Silent Patient by Alex Michalides and The Farm by Joanne Ramos. Elaine Tanner wakes with excruciating pain from a scalp scar and discovers she's the only patient in an Alabama hospital surrounded by miles of marshland. She can't remember who she is. Business-suited men kidnapping her younger sister is her one and only memory. Unbeknownst to her, Professor Duell has used her for a first-of-its-kind brain experiment. Telling Elaine what truly happened jeopardizes the study's success because it risks implanting false memories while she heals, so he refuses to answer any of her questions. Duell's resolve to achieve academic success and please wealthy investors is matched only by Elaine's desperation to figure out what happened and to find her sister. Then Elaine notices things around the hospital that don't make sense. Nurses drinking from empty cups, a girl who appears at night begging Elaine for help, and a wall full of photos of an old woman she doesn't know. She escapes through a hidden window only to discover the nearest town consists of movie set shop fronts. With Duel hunting her down, Elaine must sort truth from lies in order to find a way out and rescue her sister, even if it means Elaine will never remember her past. My short fiction has appeared in Pro Science Fiction Magazine and Year's Best Anthology. I completed an MFA from the University of Auckland during my surgical residency. I am a head and neck cancer surgeon who wishes homeopathy and healing crystals really worked. That way I could spend all my time writing. Thank you for your time and consideration. Redacted. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay, so for our listeners today, Carly and Cece are kicking it back old school, and they'll both be critiquing three different query letters. So Carly, tell us your take on that, and then we'll hear what Cece has to say. All right. So I just wanted to start with a conversation about titles. So I actually worked on a book with this title, Do No Harm by Christina McDonald. So it's not to say that you can never have a book with the same title as another book. You generally kind of want to avoid it, especially if it's come out in the past three, four, five years. So it's, again, not a deal breaker. You just really want to be aware Googling other book titles, just making sure going on Goodreads, you know, just seeing what else is out there with that title. Because again, I worked on a book with that title. So I know, I know one's out there recently. Okay. So in terms of our comps, so I don't know if we need the Dennis Lehane and the Philip K. Dick part, because I think the more important ones are the silent patient and the farm. So I would stick with those. And I love the farm. That was a really great book. And I think that's a, that's a great comp. Okay, so next up. So the big question I have here is POV. Is it multiple? Is it dual? Because this really, to me, affects the entire way we comprehend the story and the way we understand what parts of it are secrets to the reader versus what is secrets to the character. That was really important for me to know. And I just kind of wanted to be a little more clear of an understanding of exactly how the head hopping was going to happen. Because if we are in first person and multiple people's point of view, how are we keeping things from the reader or the characters? Because we're going to kind of know everything that's happening. So I just have a lot of questions about the actual kind of structure there. And I'd like to know a little bit more about that. So the next thing is, so this is set in Alabama. 
And yet all the spelling is British. So, I mean, really, I think that the spelling should be Americanized to match the setting. So I would, I would probably suggest making the switch there. I'm really wondering how sympathetic we're supposed to be to this dual character, Professor Duel. I think this, again, comes back to the whole POV, because if we are in his POV, that's kind of a villain POV, right? That's like a really interesting and different type of of story, which I, that's why I think The Farm is a really good comp, because we get multiple perspectives in that book. But I don't know if that one was first person or not. So so anyway, as I said, I have a lot of questions about the actual organization and, and head hopping here. All in all, though, it's really interesting. This is a really, this is a really interesting hook. I love the whole like everything isn't what she thought it was. You know, she climbs out and still doesn't know what's going on. Really, really engaging and interesting. And lastly, you are a very busy person. So you did your MFA during your surgical residency. So I am just absolutely impressed. I thought I was busy. And then I read something like this. I'm like, wow. So well done you. And thank you for sharing your gray letter. Wonderful, Carly. Cece, what have you got to add to that before we hear from Carly what was in those opening pages? Very quickly, I want to say that I agree we should absolutely keep Silent Patient Meets the Farm for the reasons Carly mentioned, but also because this is full disclosure to anyone who queries me. If you tell me a book is X meets Y and both X and Y are male authors, I'm going to roll my eyes. I'm going to read your query letter. I'm going to sign you if I love it. I'm going to request a full. I'm going to do all the good stuff, but I will roll my eyes. And I don't think I want to. So yeah, don't don't use two male authors. Just don't do that. And I also want to say that I love the line about the healing crystals, if healing crystals really work. That was hilarious and I loved it. Thank you for that. Wonderful, Cece. Okay, Carly, what was in those opening pages? And then give us your take on them. So we open with our character waking up in their hospital bed wrapped in warm blankets. She's just really kind of coming to and starting to observe her world. So her world includes kind of waking up. As mentioned in the query, she's kind of looking at the walls, noticing some things. She's noticing that she's kind of unable to move. You know, she's got a lot of medication. There's doctors, people in suits and nurses kind of keeping an eye on her, keeping watch. You know, as she's kind of coming in and out of consciousness, she's been giving medication. As she starts to kind of come to, she talks to the nurse, you know, kind of saying like, please stop giving me all of this medication. So she's like, we're watching her slowly kind of figure out what's going on. She meets a character who kind of knows a little bit more and kind of saying like, "Mm, what do you know? What do you not know? So again, it's just really her just waking up in the hospital bed, trying to get her bearings. Okay, so it sounds like this kind of opening is going to be big on interiority because it sounds like we're dealing with what the character's thinking, et cetera, et cetera. So does it work? What do you think? So I think this is, it was a really interesting choice to to have this in first person. So I think my issue here is we really have to slowly come to understand how she becomes self-aware and how much we want to tell the reader. Because at points, I felt like we, the reader, were not gaining consciousness with her, which made it really hard to kind of relate to her state in terms of certain information being told. I don't know. I just didn't really find the flow of that kind of coming to consciousness just really in line with the reader's expectations there. There were some things that I think worked at times. At least she said something about like, perhaps what I need is a sit down PowerPoint presentation. And then she thinks like, oh, PowerPoint, how interesting that I know that, right? So we we do get glimpses of this, but at times it just felt like jumps to me. And another thing that I liked was when 
the line says, the other funny thing I can remember is how to read people's faces. I can tell the smile he throws my way lacks feels. Literally, the facial expression would not look out of place on a six-year-old drawing. Was it sad or happy or empty? Perhaps dread is radiating from me despite the brave facade I raise. He's merely echoing it. So again, we're making like large jumps in consciousness. So that's why I, I just didn't really feel like the reader was exactly where we needed to be in terms of understanding her feelings. Is it rage? Is it, um, you know, contentment or, you know what I mean? Like just, are we accepting our fate? Are we not accepting our fate? So I, I did feel like we lacked a little bit in terms of that, just understanding and in terms of that interiority and really feeling connected to the character. But Cece, what did you think? I think the point about her interiority is spot on. For me, it led to a plausibility issue. I was not believing her thought process or her emotionality because she didn't read like a woman who woke up in a hospital bed. She was focusing on the wrong things. For example, it takes her many pages to ask a question that in my opinion would be the first question, like what happened to me? Where am I? Something like that. Her first question is about a painting on the wall because it's, or a picture on the wall of a woman she doesn't recognize that. Her attitude is also like really focusing on criticizing other people. And normally I love that in a character because I love critical. But when you just woke up in a hospital bed and you don't even know who you are, I don't think you're going to be focusing on the fact that the nurse's nose is ruining an otherwise gorgeous face. Like I just don't, not because you're a good person, but because I just don't think your brain has the bandwidth to focus on that. You have bigger problems. So, but maybe again, maybe that's the intention. Maybe later on it'll make sense. I do think that. Your note about the point of view might actually be be a really great solution to this. I don't know if it should be first because, and again, this actually ties to my personal preference. So take it with a grain of salt. I find it difficult to connect with the character who is waking up and not knowing what's going on anyway, regardless of how believable the emotionality is. I think it's because the character is so confused that it makes me confused and that just throws me off. So maybe if this weren't in first person, it would be a better opening. Or perhaps if we were to see another scene in her life first, and then she would wake up confused. As another example, there are doctors with champagne and flutes around her saying things like, it worked, it worked, this time it worked. And like I just don't believe that. I don't believe that even if they are having an experiment on this woman and you know trying to get her to lose her memories or whatever is actually going on, because we don't know, I don't believe it would happen in front of the patient as soon as the patient first opens their eyes. It's too obvious. And I say this no, fully knowing that it might make sense in five pages or 10 pages, but it really is your job to, you know, in the first five pages or first two or three even, make me believe that this could be real, I guess. Thank you, Cece. Do you have any solution to that? Because what she's obviously going for by having her wake up and see all the doctors celebrating is contextualizing this thing that has happened that she kind of wants the reader to understand, but the character wouldn't have access to this information. So you're thinking that third person would help solve this, or is there another way that you could suggest of her approaching this? Third person might solve it, but also if first is important for some reason, another solution might be going down the Leon Moriarty insert chapters route, where she has a character like a waitress at a diner, very short one page point of view, and it could be a nurse, or it could be a, a you know someone whose first day at the hospital, like they just got hired, and they're so confused about why these doctors are are popping the champagne open outside of the room. It could be insert chapters. That's what I'm saying. Or it could also be keeping this in first and having us be weirded out, but then work on the emotionality and the interiority 
Because again, the whole like her asking a question about about a picture, I I don't buy it. I just don't buy it. And this is just one example. She asks three questions before she asks the question that, in my opinion, she would actually ask. And I obviously have very strong feelings about this, which is not a bad thing. You want people to have strong feelings about your work. But I'm just not convinced that a woman waking up, not knowing her own name, that she would ask for things and notice these things before asking about herself. Yeah, perhaps another solution would be, we were saying about the POV, perhaps one perspective from this character's perspective, and then we shift to someone in the team, one of the the doctors who is part of this experiment, and then we see them in a completely separate scene, busy celebrating, etc. Obviously, we don't know enough about the story to see if that kind of POV, multiple POV will work, but certainly will solve this issue. All right. Thank you to you both. Right, Cece, will you read us the next query letter? Dear Ms. Waters, the shit no one tells you about writing podcasts has been a constant source of motivation along the bumpy writing road, which is why I'm excited to submit my novel for your consideration. The Longest Burn is a 78,000-word mystery set in a remote resort town in British Columbia that's cut off from the rest of the world by seasonal forest fires. It combines the character-driven police procedural storytelling of Tana French with the emotional heft of Bill Clegg's Did You Ever Have a Family, and it will sit nicely on the shelf next to multi-POV crime novels like Haley Scrivener's Dirt Creek. There's one thing Detective Kenneth Tingle knows for sure. He's not going to spend his final years burdening strangers with his care. So when his doctor informs him he has lung cancer, he decides to forego treatment and focus on one last case before ending things on his own terms. The investigation takes him by chopper to the isolated community of Forbidden Lake to examine a dead woman in a kayak. Just minutes before smoke from nearby forest fires severs access to and from the area, battling symptoms that are only exacerbated by the suffocatingly smoking, smoky skies. Tingle's job is to figure out which of the colorful characters killed the reclusive resort guest. Through witness interviews and insights from a diverse ensemble cast, we learn about the cutthroat conflicts that simmer beneath the community's tight-knit facade. Three days into the investigation, Tingle's prime suspect ends up dead, and this time it looks like a tragic accident. He's not convinced, but his dwindling lung capacity is begging him to accept an easy win. Just when it looks like he's about to complete his morbid bucket list, a third murder forces him to finish what he started. Only by identifying whose grievances burn longest can he stop the killer from striking again and maybe, just maybe, find his own will to keep on fighting. I'm a debut author, copywriter, and member of the Crime Writers of Canada who moved back to her seaside hometown on Vancouver Island after 12 years in Europe. Writing this novel has helped me understand the importance of community during a time when our social fabric is fraying at the seams. I live with my two hilarious young daughters, one logical German husband, and a rambunctious lapdog, and a blue-eyed cat. I devour mystery novels and sour candies with equal fervor. All the best, Alex Clark. Content note. The full manuscript contains non-graphic mentions of sexual assault, disordered eating, homophobia, suicidal ideation, and drug and alcohol use. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Wow, this one sounds really interesting. And we have a ticking time clock here in terms of getting everything done. So that always helps with pacing and tension. What did you think, Cece? I love the hook. And I love these sorts of books, love these sorts of stories. 
So definitely would be curious to keep on reading. Uh, if I got this query letter, I know it's addressed to Carly, but if I got it, I would 100% be curious to give the writer the very best chance of getting as many full requests as possible. I will say that to me, the plot paragraph needs a little bit of work because we're not getting any information on the other characters. It's like colorful cast of characters and which one of the prime suspects and I would like, if possible, to get just like a few, like three or four possible theories. Like, is it the gardener who keeps lurking around? Is it the XYZ who does this? If you can manage to fit that in, because I would like more specificity. But you know, this is this is me just going like, okay, here's how to make this even better. Because I think it's it sounds like a really cool hook, strong character, strong character motivation. There's a reason why the character's there. The plot escalation is obviously very clear. You know, one murder becomes two, two become three. So yeah, it's it's really great. I'm super curious to hear what Carly thought. So the, yes, this query was addressed to me and um, this person probably knows this, but I loved Bill Clegg's Did You Ever Have a Family? Love, love, love that book. If anybody wants an example of how to write a short novel that is an absolute gut punch, that is just one of my favorites. Okay. So yes, love, love that one. So overall, I I actually didn't overly notice the fact that we were missing the other POV. So that's really interesting because I just felt like this person, obviously it says multi-POV, we know that, but I didn't miss it necessarily. Like obviously they had to choose one person to focus on and that's just what they did and, and that's how they based this query letter. So yeah, so that didn't really bother me. But now that Cece pointed out, I'm like, yeah, I think just that, that little line about like, you know, is it the so-and-so or the so-and-so, that type of thing could work really well. But I didn't overly miss it, just so you know. The next thing is the, so the morbid bucket list. So it says just when it looks like he's about to complete his morbid bucket list. So I wasn't really clear if it, that the bucket list was, let's just do this case as like our one last job or whether there were more things on this bucket list. I don't know. I was a little bit kind of hmm, about that. I don't know if we needed to know more about the bucket list, if the bucket list is part of the hook or it's a twist or if it was just kind of an offhand comment. That one stood out to me a little bit. But overall, I really like the, you know, keep the illness a secret part. I like the ticking time clock. I like the really kind of close-knit community stuff. All of that really creates such a pressure cooker situation. And I really, really enjoyed it. Thanks, Carly. Okay, Cece, will you tell us what was in those opening pages and then give us your take on them? So we start with the protagonist in the doctor's waiting room. And, you know, the doctor's taking a while to come and there's a child in the waiting room and he actually reads to the child and he has to leaf through a very bare assortment of reading material. And there's a flyer to the Forbidden Lake Resort. So we do see that. And then he goes into the doctor's room and the doctor tells him that... He does have cancer, and she is going to recommend him to the top oncologist in town. And he means, you mean the only one in town? And she says, well, yes, but he's actually very good. So he's, you know, obviously gets this news. And then we have a line break. And he, oh, while he was at the doctor's office, he got a whole bunch of texts that he ignored from the sergeant. And after he leaves the doctor's room, the sergeant calls him and says, we have, we have news. There was a body out at Forbidden Lake in a kayak tied to a dock. That's what the locals said anyway. And he was like in the kayak, drowned. And he's like, well, not unless the, the lake stabbed her in the neck. And that's what we get. That's all we have in these five pages. Okay. How, how much heavy lifting do you think they did? Did they do the trick? I will actually ask the writer to forgive me for going off on a brainstorming session because I really like the idea for this novel. And I think that your writing is really strong. I just think you're starting in the wrong place. Personally, here's what I would do. 
And here's the reason. You're not maximizing the tension or peaking curiosity in the way that you, to, to the fullest extent, you are doing it, but not as much as you could given the setup. So have this be his last day on the job. He decided to retire. People find this to be super odd because he's young and he won't be able to collect his full pension. And there are theories around the office about what could cause this strange behavior, everything from fell for an internet scam and is moving across the country for a woman who doesn't exist to something else. And the reader will wonder why he's retiring early. The sergeant walks into his office and asks him to take one last case because of some plausible reason. And he refuses. But then as he's clearing up his desk, his daughter calls him and says, Dad, I'm, I'm going to be another week. It's I'm, I'm delayed or maybe not a week, maybe a month sometime. And she won't be able to join him like she said she would. And this makes him angry. But at the same time, he remembers she doesn't know the whole truth and that he wasn't the father that he was supposed to be. And he was planning on telling her the whole truth when she arrived. And the reader's like, what is the whole truth? We don't know. And of course, it's going to be the diagnosis, right? But at this point, we don't know that yet. So he decides to take the case, spend the extra time, whether it's a week or a month. And then the others at the office are going to make, are, are going to wonder like, what made you change your mind about this secretive thing? The reader will wonder about why he didn't share the news with the daughter. Eventually, we will find out about his diagnosis, but a little bit further into the story, his resolve to make this his last case will make sense because he then wants to die on his own terms and he does have time now. He can't just be idling around without his daughter. I think that this would also make us feel for him because things like a daughter who is not estranged, but you know, it's a, it's a fractured relationship will really make us feel for him. The dedication to his career will make, really make us feel for him. And I think that this will allow you, the author, to plant curiosity seeds because starting with a diagnosis feels sad. And then cutting to the, the body, it feels it feels like one story and then another story. And you can just tie it all together and have the diagnosis already be something that he knows because there's no reason why we should hear it from the doctor. It's just not necessary. It's it's essentially the same story. It's just more about how you order it, how you, you know, what you do first, what you do second. That's that's what I would do. That's my suggestion. Wonderful, Cece. Okay, Carly, what's your take on that? All right. So I didn't have as eruptive of a big change as Cece imagined, but I deep down agree you know, I think parts of this felt coincidental, you know, with the looking at the Forbidden Lake pamphlet, and then all of a sudden, oh, this Forbidden Lake is where the murder happens. It really just felt like that I could see the scaffolding of like what the author was trying to do here. And I just like it better when I just can't see the scaffolding because I know that all authors create the scaffolding. I just want us to see the building, right? I don't want to see the scaffolding. And I just felt like I really saw the scaffolding here. So I think those are some those are some really good tips um, that that Cece had. I think there is a bit of reimagining that needs to do about tension and tone, as Cece said, right? She's getting at more tension and the tone of this scene, very sad, right? Very downer, right? Because it's like, oh, is our character going to die on the fourth page? No, we need him to live for this whole book, right? So we need to start create some energy, even though um, some momentum, right? Even though this is this is sad. So as much as I love this hook, I do feel like these pages could do a bit more heavy lifting. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Well, Alex, you've got some suggestions there that'll hopefully help you in terms of polishing. Okay, Carly, let's go to our last query letter. Will you read that for us, please? Dear Cece, I am submitting Them's the Rules, my 80,000-word commercial women's fiction manuscript for you to review. It challenges arbitrary patriarchal rules through the lens of motherhood and the mundane yet potentially life-altering decisions, or so they tend to believe, parents are forced to make every day. It's as honest about parenting as Lucy Mannion's Are We Having Fun Yet? and deals with the issues raised as attentively as Lori Frankel's This Is How It Always Is. 
Them's the Rules is the story of Amber Barrington, whose liberal and idealistic worldviews are put to the test when her seven-year-old son wants to wear a dress to a conservative family wedding. Amber has two major life goals. One, to have her own happy family, something she didn't experience growing up. And two, for everyone in this world to be free, to be exactly who they want to be, which is why she's a civil rights lawyer. Them's the Rules examines what happens to Amber's perfect little world when what she wants from life, what she believes is right, and what she has to do to achieve these goals no longer align. How can she maintain family harmony when her husband Patrick does not want their son to wear a dress? How can Amber guarantee her son's freedom of expression if he can't wear that dress? And why is a boy wearing a dress that big of a deal anyway? Everyone has an opinion in the run-up to the wedding, and as tensions rise, Amber finds himself questioning everything she's ever believed in. Will she be able to stick to her guns even if it's the expense of her marriage, or will she sacrifice her ideals for the sake of her family? Them's the Rules is a conversation-starting book about family, parenthood, and breaking free from frivolous societal rules. It's a story that tries to make sense of why girls can wear trousers, but boys can't wear dresses. How parenting and certainty are two mutually exclusive concepts, and how the way we were raised affects us long into our own parenting journey. I grew up in Germany and the USA, am fully bilingual, but prefer to write in English, the language that I live in most days. I have a PhD in French Caribbean women's literature from Cambridge and worked as an editor in publishing before setting up as a freelance copy editor and proofreader. To date, all of my publications have been academic, and this is my first foray into fiction writing. I have participated in a five-day Arvon residential writing course in 2014 and two Curtis Brown creative courses, starting to write and write to the end of your novel earlier this year. When I'm not writing, you can find me in Hove, trying to parent my two rambunctious boys and slightly less so husband. I'm an avid reader and book reviewer. Find me on Instagram at jens.book.nook and compensate for all that sitting by running, cycling, and stand-up paddleboarding in the sea whenever I get a chance. Thank you so much for your time and attention. I look forward to hearing from you. Warmest regards, Jennifer. Wonderful, Carly. Okay, what did you think of that query letter? All right. So I really liked Laurie Frankel's This Is How It Always Is. I really, really love this book. What a great book. So yeah, I think that one is a really, really strong comp here. Um, I just kind of want to get at a technical question. I know this is a podcast, so you guys can't always see, but it's another reason to kind of go on Kofi um, so you guys can see exactly what's going on here. But the title starts off capitalized and bold, and then it goes later on below to lowercase and italics. Meanwhile, the names of the characters are capitalized. So that whole capitalizing the characters thing is more of a synopsis tool and actually doesn't always need to be done anyway. So I would just kind of make sure we we scrap that and make sure our title is much more prominent than our character names. So I would go back to capitalizing the title. And so we start off with a bit of a hook here that says who and idealistic worldviews are put to the test when her seven-year-old son wants to wear a dress to a conservative family wedding. So I think we need a bit more here because this is really just the inciting incident and not the full hook, right? What we need to know are what are the repercussions of this decision or conversation. Really, this is just, you just told me the inciting incident. I want you to have a more jam-packed sentence here. So let's add more to that sentence about what are the repercussions of this? Because the paragraph that follows has way too many questions in it, right? Everything is a question. We have, what is it? One, two, three, four, five questions. Rhetorical questions, essentially. I mean a question why is it a boy wearing a dress that big of a deal anyways well it's not like we know that right so these are just rhetorical questions kind of getting at these conversation starters and there's multiple times in this query that she says this book is a conversation starter so i always come back to the whole like let the story do the talking you don't have to tell us with the themes all of that sort of stuff you've created a book here that is a conversation starter right so let's just show through this plot and through your query letter 
all of this stuff instead of having to tell us all of these things, right? We we know that girls can wear trousers and boys can wear dresses. Well, most of us do anyway. <laughs> I believe it. So I, I don't know. I just felt like that was just too much theme work for me when I really just wanted to spend all that real estate on plot. I have some technical comments just about like some places some M dashes should be in the uh, first sentence in paragraph three. We should have M dashes instead of commas because it's just a whole lot of commas. Yeah, and I, I just think it is it is a lot more wordy than it needs to be. And I really just focus on the repercussions of this incident more so than asking questions about how the reader potentially feels about all of this. Because at the end of the day, yes, your query letter, you know, you get an agent, the agent will then pitch the editor. But for readers down the line, there's going to be a readers club guide with book club questions in the back, right? Like all of that stuff can come later. Let's just really focus on sharing the meat of this actual story and what actually happens in the story because your pages are, are pretty strong. So um, you did a good job there. Thank you, Carly. Yes. And I have never met an M-dash that I didn't love. It's like my security blanket of punctuation. So 100% there. Okay, Cece, what was your take? Team M-dash. I want to just very quickly add to that, that I believe, Jennifer, that what you did is you wrote a review of your book as opposed to a query letter. And a really great review too. I love the review, but that's what you did. But I think it just speaks to Carly's point about these are questions that will come in the book club discussions, in the reader's guides, um, in the reviews. But yeah, focus on plot. We know an inciting incident. We don't know a single plot escalation. Um, that's your job. Your job is to get us to be really, really curious to read this. As important as these themes are, no one picks up a fiction book because the themes are important. They pick up a fiction book because they're curious to find out what's going to happen in that story. And then in the process of reading that book, they are challenged. They they rethink things that they didn't think needed re-examination. And that's a wonderful thing. But don't lead with that. Carly always says this, and I agree. Themes don't sell books. Hooks sell books. So yeah, lean into the hook, lean into the plot, make sure to tell us how the plot escalates all the way till the climax and keep these great questions and really great review for later because you'll need it for later, but not now. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, Carly, what was in those opening pages? Okay, so we start with our, our main character here, Amber. She's telling us that she's waking up a little bit hungover. She went out with some other moms from school last night, had some gossip, had a couple extra glasses of wine to kind of socially lubricate the situation. So she wakes up in the morning, her head throbbing, gets called into the headmaster's office at the children's school. And she doesn't kind of know what it's about, but she thinks she might, but she's just overall not feeling very well. The headmaster explains there's been some confidentiality issues about parents talking about things that they shouldn't be. They talk about their little WhatsApp text chain. And then she's kind of feeling kind of, you know, as I said, groggy, deciding just how she wants to kind of handle the situation if she wants to kind of be combative. But she kind of maintains her ground that she was in the right. She was trying to stand up for a teacher. She wasn't doing any bad mouthing, but it sounds like there's going to be lots of conniving conversations between the moms at this school. Okay. And what did you think of the opening pages? Okay. So right off the top here, so our, our first bit say, it all started with the non-binary sock puppet. The appearance of Jesse in magpie class, swiftly followed by their disappearance, didn't actually induce any of the events that were to take place. So I think it needs to be a little bit more clear who is Jesse. Is Jesse the child? Is Jesse the toy? Because 
yes, we kind of know that this toy thing happens, but I would just, I don't know. I just kind of wanted to be a little bit more clear about who was disappearing, <laughs> just making sure we understand it's the toy. I don't know. I think there's a little bit of finessing with the language there we could do so that we weren't just having some question marks right off the top here. I had a few formatting kind of issues with my manuscript, and I don't know if it was because it was, you know, exporting it from another word processor or something like that, but I had a lot of just kind of extra commas and brackets and things like that in mine. So I just made some notes of that. It was a little bit distracting for me. So just a reminder to double check if you're moving between a couple different word processing formats, just to double check your, your final file. So overall, the drama here is very intense. It's very good. If you would put your could put yourself in this position or you've been in this position, you know, gossiping with other moms at school or other parents at school, there can be a lot of drama, right? So I think inherently in this world, in this small kind of bubble of school, this is very tense and this is very dramatic. So I think that accomplishes, really accomplishes the job there. I think there's a lot of really good details. One of the details I really liked was Amber sat up straighter in her chair, which was made difficult by being another one of those low arm chairs, meaning she nearly kneed herself in the boobs as she did so, as she still summoned an air of assurance. So I just felt like, you know, there are really small details there about the power play in terms of like the seating arrangements and and all of that sort of stuff. And you guys know I always love power play and that sort of stuff in, in opening pages. But overall, this scene is long. It's just too long. I think she should be leaving the situation sooner or the principal need to be called out to another issue. Um, I just think the actual scene itself went on too long. Thank you, Carly. Okay, Cece, what was your take on that? I agree. I have two notes. First is the first page reads like an essay more than a scene, a really well-written essay, I want to say. I would just cut that Part. I wouldn't like you're you're leading us right like you're you're telling it all started with this and there's nothing wrong with that some books do that I think that your scene work is so strong that you should just lean into that and write really tightly from a scene level that's what I would do I would start with the scene where she's talking to the teacher just in media rest just have her talking right from the very beginning the second thing is that I felt very frustrated not knowing what was said Initially, she thinks that the issue is that she defended the teacher, and she's bored and almost annoyed. And then when she finds out that the the teacher is suggesting that actually she said something offensive, then her emotionality becomes just very, very exaggerated almost, right? Like she can't breathe, she's about to cry. And without knowing what was said, it felt frustrating. It didn't land to me. I don't think that that's something that should be kept from us. I don't think that that's something that should be withheld. I would just share it through her interiority or the teacher can't pull up the message is fine, but, but some other way, because it's just, it's just frustrating at this point to have this carrot dangling, this entire conversation about something that was said, and we have no idea what that something is. So I do think that mystery is a good thing and there should be other mysteries, but not, not about the text, not about what the text actually said. So yeah, these are my notes. Wonderful. Thank you to you both. Okay. That's it for today's books with hooks. Now we go to today's guest. Hi everyone, it's Cece here. I'm stopping by to let you know about my upcoming webinar. It's called From Memories to Memoir, Turning Your Life Story into a Book. 
And as you can probably guess from the title, it's all about the memoir genre. Join me on October 6th at 8pm via Zoom to learn about things like the importance of a strong hook in a memoir, examples of memoirs that are being sold right now, and the biggest challenges in writing memoirs, and how you can turn them into successes. So whether you've completed your memoir or you're just thinking about writing one, I invite you to join me. For information on how to register, please head over to my Instagram or Twitter page, click on the link in my bio, and follow the instructions. And don't worry, if you're busy on October 6th, the class will be recorded and a recording will be sent to everyone who is registered 24 hours later. I hope to see you there. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky, though, to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. So you can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're going to get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup 
for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Today, we have two awesome guests on the show. The first is a lawyer with more than 10 years experience as a litigator, a graduate of Boston College and the Boston University School of Law. She is the New York Times and USA Today best-selling author of The Only Woman in the Room, The Mystery of Mrs. Christie, Carnegie's Maid, The Other Einstein, and Lady Clementine. All have been translated into multiple languages. She lives in Pittsburgh with her family. The second guest is an acclaimed author with more than 1 million books in print. She has written more than 20 novels, including Stand Your Ground, an NAACP Image Award winner for Outstanding Fiction, and a Library Journal Best Book of the Year. She holds an MBA from the NYU Stern School of Business. It's my pleasure to welcome Marie Benedict and Victoria Christopher Murray. Marie and Victoria, welcome to the show. Thank you for having thank, us. Thank you for having us. Pleasure is all mine. There is so much to unpack. Firstly, I am fascinated by the story. I am fascinated by historical fiction. And I am fascinated by writing partnerships. I've said before on the podcast that I would love to work with a writing partner, but I cannot imagine it going very, very well because I am such a terrible control freak. So we're going to get some advice from these two wonderful authors as to how we might avoid those kinds of pitfalls. So the book we're talking about today is the instant New York Times bestseller, The Personal Librarian. So I need to know from both of you, what came first, the partnership or the idea for this book? Well, Victoria would normally pop in right now and tell me to start. So I'm just going to take it from here. So the book actually came first. As you mentioned earlier, I was a New York City litigator for a long time, over a decade. A disgruntled one, let's put it that way, one knowing that that wasn't really my calling. And I had long had a passion for the untold pieces of history. I was a history major in college. And as I started to practice, I realized that that was really my passion. And I would kind of sneak off to some of the cultural institutions in New York City. And one of the places I loved to go, no surprise, was the Morgan Library, which I loved. It was there that I first came across Val. Belda Costa Green, who was J.P. Morgan's personal librarian. She was so much more than that. She was his curator. She was his advocate and representative in the world. And she became a celebrity in her own lifetime, starting in the 19-teens. And I kind of added her to my list of people that I might consider writing about when a docent there told me about her. It wasn't well known at that time that she had played a big role at the Morgan. She wasn't featured prominently within the library itself. And over the years, as I kind of turned to writing um, historical fiction about women, instead of lawyering, she was always on my list. But it wasn't until I started to learn more about her in the kind of decades that followed, learning that she was remarkable, certainly as J.P. Morgan's personal librarian, but even more remarkable because she was a Black woman passing as white at a time period of intense segregation in our country, 
she came from this glorious background, rich cultural history from both of her parents. And I knew that Belle DaCosta Green, who had to pass as white her whole life or most of her life, she deserved to have a Black woman tell her story as well. And it was around that time that I read a wonderful book that Victoria had written called Stand Your Ground, which explores from the perspective of the women this terrible issue of the shooting of young Black men in our country. And as I read that book, I started to kind of think, even though it wasn't historical fiction like I write, I realized that she was trying to explore really important, timely issues from a fresh perspective. And so through our agents, I took the bold step, even though we had never met, of seeing if she might be willing to explore writing this book with me. And Victoria usually takes it from here. And I do take it from here because what happened after that was Marie sent me a proposal through my my agent, and my agent didn't tell me anything. She just said, read these three pages. It may be something you're interested in. And so the first thing I wanted to do, because she did say an author was interested in collaborating with me. So I Googled Marie and I saw that she wrote these wonderful novels of women lost in the folds of history. But I wanted to know what did that have to do with me? I wrote contemporary fiction, not historical. And then I I saw a picture of Marie and I wondered if she had ever seen a picture of me. And if she was looking for a different Victoria Christopher Murray, I called my agent back and she says, she knows you're Black, just read the proposal. It still took me about three months to read the proposal. Sometimes Marie says it took me four, but it took me about three months because the first page was just about J.P. Morgan. And I was not interested in J.P. Morgan at all. And my agent kept calling me back and saying, have you read it? And I said, I was too busy. Finally, she said, you're not too busy to read three pages. And I read it. The second page got a little bit interesting, but I always tease Marie because she hid the lead. She hid it in the last paragraph where she said, this phenomenal woman, Belle DaCosta Green, who did all of this, no one knew she was Black until she passed away. And I could not get to the phone fast enough. And what was so amazing was the moment Marie and I spoke on the phone, I knew we could do this collaboration because I had done a collaboration with another author and I knew that the most important thing was that you have a writing soulmate. Even if one is more controlling or one is more in the lane of a lawyer, (laughs) you learn how to manage each other if it's a soulmate. And I knew from the beginning, I wasn't sure if Marie knew because she had never done a collaboration before. I love that answer on multiple levels. So the one is now for the listeners of our podcast, this is why we have agents on the show who read your query letters and your opening pages, because so often you do bury the damn lead. And agents don't have time to read through everything. They like a paragraph or two. Am I interested? Same goes for best-selling authors. They like a paragraph or two. Am I interested? And the fact that Marie is such a prolific and well-known and successful author, and she still buried the damn lead, tells you something that this is something that can happen to everyone. Besides that, I love what you say about that chemistry and, and the two of you 
clicking because that is so incredibly important. And I think a lot of the writing partnerships I see, that's how people started writing together. So they weren't published before. They didn't have a career before. They were like, let's write a book. They did it. And then they grew into that. So this fascinates me because you were both so successful separately. Was there not a power play? Was there not power dynamics in terms of I know better how to do this. Or did you guys just share an absolute vision for this book from the beginning? I'll pick up where Victoria left off. I mean, I think from that first phone call that she just referenced, you know, we hadn't met. Yes, I did bury the lead. I've learned a lot from that misstep, I'll tell you. And that is a really, wow. After all these years, I was still doing it. Really from that first phone call, we clicked, right? I mean, just socially, emotionally, psychologically, we're similar in in so many ways, aside from the obvious. I don't know if you know, but she's black and I'm white. But aside from that, we clicked, right? But there was more than that. It kind of goes to the point that you just raised. Like we both, from the minute we started talking, it was evident that there was no ego in the game, that we shared the same goal. And that goal was to honor Belle de Costa Green. That goal was to tell the best story that we possibly could about this incredible woman. Whoever had the best idea, that was the one going in there. Whoever had a revision that needed to be made in order to best tell her story, that's how it was going to go. And that was really, I mean, Victoria may have her own views, but we've talked about this before. We really said right from the start that that was the goal. And I think in that conversation, that was so evident to me. I mean, I had no idea how to write I would go write a book. You know, Victoria hinted to the fact that as a former lawyer, I like my flow charts and my checklists and all that stuff. And Victoria operates a little differently. And that flexibility has been like a great lesson for me. But I didn't know the how-to of writing, co-writing a book. And I've learned so much about that and so much from Victoria. But that core goal of writing the best book we could, no matter who was taking the lead on a chapter, a section, an idea that was there from the very start. And that was absolutely crucial to the project. Now, in terms of how you approached this, I imagine there must have been a lot of research that had to go into this because it's looking at her correspondence. It's looking at diaries. It's looking at other people's writing about her. There's a ton of work. So did you say, okay, we're going to divide and conquer. We're going to do all the research we can first, then we will begin drafting. Did you go, we're going to draft and every time we need to do research, we're going to stop and do research. Did one of you research while one of you drafted? How did that look? So Marie is the historical expert. And one of the things in this collaboration that I love is we both recognize each other's strengths and we respect each other's strengths. So I know what's in my lane. And I'm getting better at it, getting better at the historical stuff. But I do let Marie take the lead on a lot of those kinds of things. So that's one of the things. But we both, Marie, and I don't want to speak for her, though I can. We're sisters. So I'm in her head and she's in my head. She had already come to the project with a lot of research because she had been interested in Belle from before. But then we both read Belle the Costa Green's biography. So that helped. And one of the things that I learned about researching historical fiction is there's no way to divvy up research because you don't know what you don't know until you don't know it, until you're in the scene writing and you're like, wow, what did the Vanderbilt house look like? What did they wear to this red ball? Those kinds of things. 
So we both started, Marie had much, had done much more, but we both started with the foundation of research of we knew the generalness, I guess, of, of Belda Costa degree. And then after I read the book, Marie told me, forget everything you just read. I thought she was a little nuts when she said that. But Marie's point, and again, don't, Marie's right here, was that's just the foundation. Now we're going to write the story. Marie, do you want to say anything else? else I mean, that's, that? that's so true. I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I'm the methodical historian in our group. <laughs> and, you know, I go into these projects having done tons of macro and micro research, but there's all, and, and Victoria's like, in it now. I mean, she loves this stuff, right? And the approach we took with this book is different than our next book, which is we're doing the final edits on now. So there's that flexibility that I learned from her about how to approach a project, whether from a writing perspective, a research perspective. But yeah, I mean, you have to keep yourself open and flexible for what you don't know and for what you do know. And one of the great things about our partnership is we learn all this stuff. You write, you get into the story. You have to forget it to get back into the moment of the story, right? Into the present writing. And in some ways, the way our strengths shift is so beautiful. Like we just did, and this is a different book, so apologies, but we just were finishing up. We did a, had a big call, was it yesterday, day before? I can't remember about our next book and some edits we're doing. And there's a scene that, you know, me, I'm the methodical historian. I'm like, oh, we got to get in this political movement and that. And Victoria's great at that too. But she's also wonderful at pulling back and saying, okay, what would these women have been talking about? It wouldn't have been, you know, the historical trend or the political nuance. It would have been like, what did you have for dinner last night, right? She's so good at character work. And as she's talking about the kind of conversations these two women would have been having, I'm like, oh yeah, they're alive now, right? And that's where we both are so flexible for each other's strengths and weaknesses while sort of learning from each other as well. And and I think a huge part of that is the fact that it's just total respect, no ego, all about telling the right story. I love that. And definitely balance because you do not want to write in partnership where you both have the exact same strengths and the same weaknesses because that's not going to work very well. What you said there as well made me think, and what you said earlier is I love that you recognized that you needed a phenomenal Black author to be telling Belle's story as well. Because, and we say this on the podcast all the time, and I say this from someone who has come from this. I have written books about apartheid South Africa, growing up in apartheid South Africa, and I have written some characters from the Black perspective because I could not tell a 360-degree view of this terrible racism without writing from a Black perspective. But I wish that at that point I had worked with a Black South African author, that we could have collaborated because it would have brought so much more to these projects. So besides playing to each other's strengths, Victoria, are there parts of the story that you feel like you tapped into because you are a Black woman that Marie would not have tapped into had she tried to tackle this project on her own? Yes, and that's such a good point. That's one of the things that I absolutely love about Marie and so many of the Black readers love about her, that she decided not to tackle this alone, that Belle's story couldn't be told completely from a white perspective, but also it couldn't be told completely from a Black perspective. So, but there were certain things, and especially in our next book, where Marie is so protective. 
She's such an ally. She's so protective of Black people through me. She's so protective. But there are certain things where she doesn't want to go to the edge. So I not only push her to the edge, I give the final shove to make her jump off. And she's kind of shocked that there's a parachute there and she'll land safely. But there are quite a few things, I think, in the personal librarian and especially in our future work where we have to push each other. You know, just on that, writing is putting ourselves in the shoes of people whose experiences we will never live. It's like acting in that way. You know, you really have to inhabit a character. You have to feel empathy for them. You have to connect at the human level in terms of the things that you have in common, like your humanity, even if you don't share race, etc. And I feel like as writers, so long as we are so incredibly respectful of that, and very, very cognizant of that. And we are constantly trying to connect at that level. It's wonderful to have a champion then like Victoria, who is saying, I know you don't want to go there, but I'm going to push you there because I'm going to be there to help you with it and make sure that you do it properly. And I think if we hold each other up to those kind of standards along the way, what a marvelous partnership indeed that is. Would you like to just comment on that a bit, Marie? Oh my gosh. I mean, it's such a gift our friendship, our sisterhood, our writing partnership on so many levels, but on a very personal level, just kind of going to what you just said, like I'm going places I would never have even known I could go without Victoria. But more importantly, I think from a writing perspective, because I know your podcast is a lot about and for writers, for me, connecting to the characters, writing a, a really full picture, empathetic picture, For me, I could not have done that. And I'm going to back up a second. Some writer, and I have to find, Victoria's heard this before, but I have to find the right attribution. But there was a writer who said, you can't write about a character unless you love someone from a similar background, right? And as you said, we we are putting ourselves in the shoes of people whose lives we really will never know for certain, right? Especially these historical women, we can't go back in time and ask them. But how could I ever have imagined or put myself in Belle DaCosta Green's shoes without loving Victoria as I do. And that's an impossibility, right? And I think our partnership and our friendship and our sisterhood allowed me just briefly the gift of looking at the world through the eyes of a Black woman, which is something I, I couldn't have fictionalized. I couldn't have imagined. I couldn't have envisioned. And that trust that she shared in me, with me in me to allow me that was an enormous gift, both every day, right? Just day in, day out in my life, but also in writing these characters. And it's funny in our next book, and I'm sorry, we're, if we're deep in that book, so we keep referring to that. So apologies, but it was even more the case because we each wrote, it's about a friendship between a black and a white woman. And it's autobiographical to some extent. And we each wrote from the perspective of the white or the black woman. And yet we found ourselves putting ourselves in the other character's shoes. And as Victoria said, becoming protective of the other character, wanting to shepherd the other character. And some of that was us putting ourselves in each other's shoes. And so a really beautiful, incredible partnership like we have has gifts beyond just the page, right? It has the ability to create bridges, both for us as people, and then hopefully for the readers. If if we really are empathetic, if we really are allowing that kind of trust to happen and grow between us. 
Love it. Absolutely. We're almost out of time. I don't know how the hell that happened, but something that I do want to ask you is, so on the podcast, I often say that beginnings are the hardest. I find a beginning of a story is like circling a building as I try and find my way in. Sometimes it's through the front door. Sometimes it's the back door. Sometimes I've got to climb up the damn fire escape on the third floor and shimmy through a chimney. And that's my way in. So how did you two decide your way in with this? Because there is so much backstory in terms of who Belle is, how she's been raised, her parents' relationship, what each of them has got going on in the world, how this informs the way they've raised her, et cetera, et cetera. So there were so many entry points potentially for you both. How did you decide where you were going to enter the story from and how did you know that was the best place to begin? Well, I think that's one of Marie's strengths. One of the first things I learned with writing with Marie and writing historical fiction is that you don't want to do a cradle to the grave. So what is this story about? And the story for Belle Costa Green was that she was J.P. Morgan's personal librarian and no one knew she was Black. That's the story. And so it was very easy to decide that that was a story we wanted to tell. So we were going to tell from this period to that period and then how the library became a public institution. So we knew the time, that time period, I think, was very clear because we just decided ahead of time what story we want to tell. And Marie is so good at that. And it's just become so clear to me, even with our next book, we knew what time period we wanted to tell. So that's why we did. It's not a cradle to the grave. You just need to know the entry point. And in terms of entry point. This is just before she gets introduced to J.P. Morgan because his nephew recommends her for the job and into a perfect place to begin. So remember, for our listeners, we're always saying, what's the inciting incident? What is the first domino that falls that makes the rest of the story fall before you get to the big key event from which the character cannot turn around from? But because you did that, what was required in the early pages was a bit of backstory to orientate the reader. We needed some exposition. We needed them to understand where she's coming from, her parents, etc. Now, we generally caution on the podcast, don't begin even like the first three chapters with any kind of backstory because backstory pulls the story back. It stops the forward momentum of the modern day story because we've been dragged into the past. So for our listeners, for those of you who are wondering how to balance backstory in opening pages, how to do it well in a way that still moves the story forward, this is an excellent book to read so that you can see how they did it. Was that something, Marie, that you were mindful of, especially with you being someone who writes historical fiction compared to Victoria who writes contemporary fiction? How is that a balance that you've been able to strike in your work? Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely is something I've had a lot of practice with at this point, right? I've written many historical fiction books about women who've left legacies. So for me, yes, you're sifting through sometimes a voluminous amount of material, right? And so as I'm doing that, I know that I'm, I'm looking for that right entry point. After I've done my initial research, I generally know what the opening scene and the closing scenes are for the most part, not always, but almost always. Sometimes I get lost in the middle. As Victoria knows, there's lots of tangents we've gone down that we've had to jettison. But for me, it all ties back to kind of the rubric by which I select the women that I write about, right? I'm looking for women who have left important legacies, 
that we benefit from today. And I'm looking for women who are grappling with issues that are timely that we as women and readers can recognize today, right? So usually, depending on on what that rubric is, what that legacy is, that's kind of the entry point, right? So take one of my first books, The Other Einstein. That was about Albert Einstein's first wife and the really her legacy as his partner. Really, she did a lot of his work. But anyway, so I wasn't going to start back with her fight to attend high school, right? Because it was illegal to attend high school back then in Serbia. But the moment that they meet in university. And you're right, you're going to get those first few chapters moving, engaging, and then you're going to say, okay, we got to understand who this character is and where are we going to fold in? And flashback is a huge way to do it. Conversation with the characters is another huge way to do it. But there's a fine line between doing that and an information dump or threading that information through. And that for me has just been years and years of doing this, right? Knowing how much is too much. And sometimes I get it wrong. And sometimes as Victoria knows, we've had to, we've had whole tangents you take out. You think it's interesting. And that I find is harder in the middle. That's where I struggle more because then you're in the thick of all that fabulous research and history. And there's so many interesting threads and you want to tell them all, but not all of them further the theme of the story, not all of them further the timely issues, the legacy you're trying to share. So if you keep, you know, just as for writers, if you keep at the front of your mind, what is the story, as Victoria said, what am I telling about her being a personal librarian or am I telling about how she got to be educated as a child, right? Depending on what that story is, where you're going to begin and what you're going to include are going to be really different things. And sometimes you've got to leave great stuff behind. You've got to leave it on the floor because it doesn't service the story. Yeah, I I love that. And 100% true. The second act for me is always the hardest. I've read things that say the third act is where authors are made. I must be honest, I, I think authors are made in the second act. And for our listeners, nothing is wasted. You write a whole bunch of pages and it feels like a waste because it ends up on the floor. No, you learned from those pages. You learned that that's not the direction you want to go. And I assume, you know, with Marie, there were tons of times in the beginning that she learned, okay, too much backstory, need to cut back on that. And that's how she learned the balance was through doing it. So nothing is wasted along the way. Victoria, Marie, thank you so, so much for joining us. It's been an absolute delight chatting with you. I can't wait to see what you come up with next and hope to have you back on the show for that. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. We'd love to come back and chat. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news. The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers? Some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line. Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th 
at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there. Great news! The Beta Reader Matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there.